0: Good morning! This is Brian O'Halloran, Dante Hicks from Clerks, and you're listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'll see you in the future.
1: Good Welcome to Too Much Scrolling for July 26, 2022. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Hesonkler. We're just a couple of guys sitting around talking about things that are important to us. Hopefully they're important to you. And if you need more information, there's so many great ways to find more information. This week, Chip, we are celebrating a birthday.
2: A birthday maybe from the future?
1: Well, it's it's this week. Happy birthday to George Jetson, born this week in 2022. How about that?
2: I'm reminded of a book a friend of mine wrote uh, a number of years ago. In uh, 2011, it was called it, We Live in a Jetson's World. And the idea was that, you know, we have so many innovations that are available to us now. And what a special time to be alive.
1: That push-button age that was the dream of the 1950s and 1960s, we really live that lifestyle. Steve,
2: what kind of work week will we will be looking at in the future?
1: The three-hour work week is just killing me. That is my favorite line from the Jetsons. I think about that all the time. George goes to work. He travels to work to push a button at work. That's what he does for a living, is he pushes one button, and and boy, his finger hurts.
2: What <laughs> <laughs> What is really interesting is the nuclear family is totally there with Rosie the robot. Think
1: about... The automation that we have today from that idea of the Jetsons, we have the robot that does the vacuuming. I just need the robot to do the dishes. that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> Film
2: at eleven.
1: Brings us to our film at 11, our movie of the week. Hey, Chip, did you go to a movie theater
2: this week? Of course I did. We review movies, Steve.
1: (laughs) Yes. Remember when I made an agreement with you that we would go back to this format and I would go see a movie? (laughs) Funny story. You went to a movie theater this week. Tell us all about the brand new Twilight Zone episode, the Jordan Peele film, Nope.
2: You know... We, we, we talk about Jordan Peele qu- quite a bit and we need to think of him as a special um, director, mm-hmm. a writer and a director. M. Night Shyamalan would be one that we could think of, maybe Quentin Tarantino
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, as another. But really where he, he is, is Rod Serling or mm-hmm. may, maybe Alfred Hitchcock. You know, he, he's, he is a person where we go to the theater to see his unique way of looking at things. And it, it's different than, you know, a big, big budget film. We're going to see the mystery that will unfold. And this is a really, really good film. Um, I, I enjoyed it a whole bunch. The idea is there's something going on. Something happens at the beginning. I can tell you many of the actors that that uh, Peel uses have really good voices. And um, anyway, they're kind of fun. They're kind of quirky in a way. They're mysterious in a way. And then you have to figure out what's going on. Um, and that is why we love these types of films. So I, I don't know if I should spend a lot of time dissecting this film because the more you kind of reveal about it, then all of a sudden you're giving away what he wants to be as the experience. So ultimately, there's something mysterious going on. We have a ranch that's involved in it. Uh, they use Fry Electronics. You remember Fry Electronics, Steve?
1: I shopped at Fry's quite a bit, and uh, the, that is no longer a brand around here.
2: Well, they must have been able to film at a Fry Electronics. Because um, it's that's one of the 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 I guess they have to go get some uh, equipment. Yeah, I guess Fry's website is still up, but I think they no nope, no they they are truly out of business. Hmm. Um, 2022,
1: George Jetson and the Push Button Age. No Fry's electronics. No Radio Shack.
2: Well, uh, like I said, they must have filmed. You know, think about what they have available. You still have a store. Mm-hmm. It's still full of inventory. They have the fry van that is part of this. And then, you know, they basically have the actress filling in as employees. What a great use of, uh, you know, a dead store is really what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. Fries, for those who are not familiar with it, I think it's a California uh, brand. They were everything that Radio Shack wanted to be, but about the size of a Walmart. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're massive. And, you know, between televisions and DVDs and... You can you, all the stuff that nobody buys anymore. And then cables, lots and lots of cables.
1: And all was... the components, all, all of those little parts that I used to be able to buy at Radio Shack. Fry's was the place for the little things as well. Now, if I need a capacitor, if I need any small pieces, I need to order them from Amazon. That's just about the only place. I don't have a local
2: place to get parts anymore. And notice that you used Amazon. You didn't even think about eBay.
1: I would not buy a capacitor on eBay. I don't. I would. I would definitely want a a new capacitor. I would not want to. Oh boy,
2: how interesting! What an interesting mm-hmm. subject that we're going on on <laughs> where we would trust things to come. And you're you're using Amazon like mm-hmm. a previous generation would use Sears. You know, when there was a Sears.
1: <laughs> Agreed. So this movie, Nope, you can't really talk about this movie, but you enjoyed the, the ride, you enjoyed the storytelling of this.
2: Sure, there's, there's a little sci-fi to it, there's a little Twilight Zone to it, and once again, this is, it comes across as an independent film. Mm-hmm. So you don't go in with the idea that you know we're looking at, I don't know, something with a lot of special effects that are going to blow you away the mysterious part is trying to figure out w- during the journey what the story and what's going on. Um, mm-hmm. This is Twilight Zone-ish. Uh, and I just, you know, that's where we need to to kind of leave the story. Mm-hmm. And it's all about having the reveal happen as you go along with, with the journey of, of the characters.
1: Very similar to what M. Night Shyamalan has tried to do, but M. Night Shyamalan has... In my opinion, failed at the storytelling the last few films. I don't know if you watched the movie Old, but it was it was not good storytelling.
2: This one is well, in the, there's the, the the challenge with it, right? It, it can be hit and miss. Mm-hmm. But Jordan Peele seems to have a hit. I mean, he seems to be hitting really, really well. I, like I said, this is not for everyone. That's but I, I would but I would say I don't know. 70 out of 100 okay i mean good. i think i think this is a good film you know will it be something that um you know at the end of the year up for best picture no not okay. at all but would, will it be something that eventually will be packed as the jordan peele collection and there's you know 10 films and you're going to go wow those were all kind of fun
1: I immediately think of my Mel Brooks collection, that collection of films that is that style of filmmaking. If you liked this film, you will probably like these films. And Jordan Peele is really
2: making a portfolio of his work. Yeah, and we had a, a diverse crowd in there. You know, it's it's a little horror, a little sci-fi, a little uh, Twilight Zone. There's a lot of little genres that are going on in there. And of course, in the middle of the film, something happens and the guy goes, nope.
1: <laughs> I look forward to seeing this one. I, I, I really enjoy Jordan Peele's style of filmmaking. Uh, is this an all ages kind of movie? Is this a no. R-rated?
2: I don't know if it's R-rated, but it's certainly teens enough. Okay, excellent.
1: Glad that you enjoyed that one. I I look forward to seeing that one as well. I got into uh, Paramount Plus this week, gave me all sorts of gifts. The first one is a documentary called The Day the Music Died, the story of Don McLean's American Pie. This is the documentary of the 50th anniversary of that song recorded in may of 1971 released in october of 1971 and don mclean really gave us an anthem a story of america in this fun song about uh the the death of three singers in a plane crash and how that impacted
2: america so did this happen a long long time ago in a galaxy far far away
1: That's what I think when you say a long, long time ago, the Weird Al version of American Pie, the saga begins is highlighted as one of the, the offshoots of this song from 50 years ago.
2: So the day that music died um, officially would be the crash of an airplane in Iowa, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens and the big bopper were on it. Mm -hmm. And that was um, sort of, some people say that that could have been the the spark that started you know where America went from uh, infancy to um, to I don't know to to teenage years hmm. So starting to grow up.
1: And that was nineteen fifty-nine, right on the precipice of the nineteen sixties, the very turbulent nineteen sixties, and that the birth of rock and roll and the change in how pop culture affected people. Of course, this is all predicated upon that baby boomer generation that changed at that time with the music. So
2: they were going to buy Paramount Plus, Dave? They must. The boomers
1: might actually get Paramount Plus because of Star Trek. That's why I have it, is because they have all of the Star Trek that you need. And but you Gen mar-
2: X, just so you know.
1: I understand that I'm Gen X. I understand that I'm watching more of the next generation Star Trek from the nineties than I'm watching the sixties Star Trek. But many of my mother's friends really like the storytelling of Star Trek and getting into Paramount plus getting these sorts of documentaries with that Star Trek channel might work for a lot of our listeners.
2: Yeah, do you know where the Star Trek uh, employees work out, Steve?
1: Oh boy, do I, Do I need to get my my rim shot sound effect ready? Where the pos- do the Star pos- Trek employees work out, Chip?
2: Damn it, Jim!
1: That was worth it. That was worth every effort, right there. <laughs> This documentary (laughs) on American Pie goes through the impact that this song has had over the last 50 years. I, I think that everybody knows this song. I think that my kids know this song and they might know all the lyrics like Gen X people do.
2: And if they don't, Steve, there's Madonna to help us out.
1: There is a Madonna version of this song. I, I don't, I don't necessarily uh, suggest that version, but the Garth Brooks version. He is a musician that took this song on stage from the beginnings of his career and, and brought it to central park in 1997, where a million people were listening to Garth Brooks and out walks Don McLean and Don McLean is just basking in this, this joy that this song brings to the crowd. And he says out loud, this is the power of music. That's what this song is all about is changing the world, giving the world, this, this picture of America.
2: It's an interesting story. Uh, American song, I would say. Yeah, you know, think of it like Yankee Doodle or This Land Is Your Land or something like that. This song certainly has roots that kind of, kind of uh, be, move beyond maybe uh, just the song and the and the and the person who's singing it.
1: It's an anthem. It it is it is that picture of America from that era. But the text is so open-ended that it can be about your American experience. He's giving these images in this in this lyrics that can be applied to anybody's life in America.
2: Something I, I just thought about was the lyrics get referred to in other songs, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot to it. There's a lot more to it than just this song. It has certainly made his career. I think he's got this song and maybe Vincent, which are probably his two most well-known songs. Mm But he's made a lifetime. Uh, uh, He's a lifetime singer-songwriter.
1: And there's, there's so many great stories in this documentary about who Don McLean was in 1971 and what he meant to the music scene because of the impact of this one song there's a cultural history of the period in this song of 1971 and, and specifically backwards to 1959, the day the music died, but it's so much more about living life in America. I think of Bruce Springsteen's American songs about giving the, the picture of what it's like to live in America or John Cougar Mellencamp. But this one really, has something special in an eight-minute song it's it's amazing to think that this super long song was played on the radio and still played on the radio to this day
2: well yeah it's not alice's restaurant long Steve. <laughs> that's true
1: it's not albuquerque it's not a 10-minute song it's only an eight-minute song by the way weird al is doing albuquerque on stage in his current summer tour and a uh, boy i would love to hear a 10-minute song played <laughs> This is a fun documentary. I do recommend it. Yes, uh, I do recommend it to our baby boomer generation listeners and to our Gen Xers. This this song is something special. Uh, Connie Valens, Richie's sister, is in this documentary talking about how her family really appreciated the ceremony of this song, giving honor to her brother. Richie Valens was only 17 when he passed away in that plane accident in 1959 it's amazing to think how much of an impact he has had um on music even at a young age
2: so uh, what did you leave knowing about this song i mean it was it was it about the song or about um uh, mclean
1: it's about the song it, it is it is about the song don mclean's story is only told as a part of how this song impacted the country his life is not really examined in this documentary. It is only about this one moment. It's more of a memoir for this man who who made such a big impact.
2: And as Paramount Plus needs to do, know your market.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. See, that was not the only thing you got to see this week.
1: Yep. I went to Amazon Prime for a... a touching movie called don't make me go this is the story of a single father and a teenage daughter he finds out that he has a fatal brain tumor and decides that he wants to go on a road trip and take his daughter for one one last adventure trying to find the mother who abandoned her years before this is a very touching very family-oriented story uh showing off how road trips and togetherness of a family can, can make that adventure, make that story for the future. This is not a great movie. Uh, John Cho plays the father. Uh, He, his acting skills are pretty impressive here. We see a a range of emotion, Uh, a man who is knowing that his fate is sealed and trying to do the best he can for his daughter. Uh, There's a vehicle involved that, of course, breaks down. That's part of the storyline. I I have this idea of the road trip. I love my road trips. And this is a good road trip movie uh, with a lot of emotion about family and taking care of each other.
2: See, this is about a person knowing they're going to die. Mm -hmm. So basically, you take your lifetime and you squeeze it into a road trip. The idea of trying to teach somebody everything they need to know. What does any parent want to do? They want to set their children up for success. Mm-hmm. And so they want to give them the skills to be able to you know, do all the things that they would like to accomplish in life.
1: And it does that well. That storytelling is, is done well in this. Again, this is not a great film, but it, it, it touches those emotional beats very well. There's some movies opening this week that maybe we'll uh, get some emotions going. The first one is called 13 Lives. This is the story of the rescue mission in Thailand where the soccer team, the, thir- the 12 boys and their coach, were trapped in a flooded cave and some brave divers had to go full mile a whole mile swimming in darkness blind to get these boys and their coach out of this cave
2: how what a fascinating real life story brought to a dramatization
1: yeah, yeah brought to us by ron howard ron howard is going to give us the claustrophobia of this situation i can't even imagine
2: trying to swim a full mile in the dark did you know I was in Mount Airy, North Carolina, earlier this week? Steve, that would be... Um, some people would know what is Mayberry.
1: There's your Ron Howard connection. Little little Richie Cunningham in Mayberry. <laughs> Ron Howard is... is... Yes, known for, for his child acting and his adult making movies. And boy, I, I look forward to seeing what, what Ron Howard can do with this story. Amazing that this is a real-life story. Colin Farrell and Vigo Mortensen play the divers here, uh, two of our best actors. One of the... <laughs> One of the divers, when asked, he said that he wanted Rowan Atkinson to play him in the movie. And Ron Howard replied, we're not making that kind of
2: movie. (laughs) That's brilliant, though. It's
1: pretty funny to imagine what Rowan Atkinson would do in this this role instead of Colin Farrell. Two very different
2: actors. What would have been a lot of fun for Ron is to, during the credits have Rowan Atkinson, like, playing some of the parts. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, just saying, well, this isn't working, Rowan. we are got to replace you.
1: <laughs> it's not that kind of movie, for sure. And,
2: and for, for those who don't know who this actor is, this is Mr. Bean.
1: Correct. Very farcical, body-style actor uh, who would make a very different movie colin
2: farrell steve interestingly enough uh the rock has another movie coming out this week
1: really he hasn't been doing anything lately (laughs) fast and
2: the furious 12
1: oh boy it's all about family the movie that's coming out this week is called dc league of super pets this is the story of Crypto the super dog and ace the bat hound Teaming up with a bunch of animals to save the Justice League because they were captured by Lex Luthor. This is an animated feature. Yes, The Rock plays Crypto and Kevin Hart plays Ace, and uh, that's all you need to know, really.
2: <laughs> so, uh, just wanting to know that uh, there were animals harmed in the making of this film. Uh, the Rock eats a lot of cod every day.
1: <laughs> There's also a squirrel named Chip. So that well, that's all.
2: That's all it, I need to know. So it's got that going for
1: it. I'm sure that Chip is the star of the show. Of course. <laughs> There's a movie called Vengeance. This is the story of a podcast host from New York City who goes to Texas to try to solve the murder of a girl that he met one time. And her family thinks that he is a big part of her life and takes him in and makes him a part of the family. This seems like a very serious, Silly, but at the same time, very deep murder mystery.
2: Well, silly murder mystery podcast from New York. He probably makes a lot of money, Steve.
1: Did I mention Ashton Kutcher is the father of the, of the young lady?
2: Well, you you know, it's going to be great.
1: I, I recommend you click on the trailer for Vengeance. It's, it's at least a fun trailer.
2: Well, you know, uh, I think that Ashton Kutcher could be the next Bruce Willis. You never know.
1: I could see that. Uh, I, I think Demi Moore saw that.
2: <laughs>
1: There's a movie called Resurrection that is a uh, scary movie about a young lady whose life is in order until uh, d- <laughs> uh, somebody returns from the dead. <laughs> like, like,
2: like a phoenix, Steve. Like a phoenix.
1: There is a shark movie coming out this week. It is shark week on discovery. Guess who's hosting it. I have no idea. The rock. The rock is hosting shark week on discovery. And there's a movie that is also coming out this week called the reef
2: stalked. It is, uh, you know what the reef is, Steve? It's a rock too. (laughs) There's a lot of rocks this week. (laughs) So guess what's going to happen. These, these young ladies Are going to get on like some kind of boat type thing and they're going to swim i'm sorry they're going to take it across to get to an island and there's going to be a big shark that's going to eat them on the way so that's what the story is going to be right let's watch it again
1: spoilers here's what bothers me about the trailer there's a part in the trailer where they're on land and i'm like oh good they're safe because it's not a land shark and they go no no we have to get back in the water
2: well the story has to go on by the way jaws is going to be shown again on fathom events i saw that last night at the theater and uh anyway they're gonna need a bigger boat this time
1: it's july 4th and these beaches will be open
2: on the in Amityville, <laughs> where all these shark attacks are happening in real life. I mean, why not?
1: Why not? Go for it. There's a movie called Ali and Ava. This, I I really want to seek this one out. This is a very independent film. It is the story of two uh, middle-aged people who find romance, find each other, two very, very different worlds coming together, and, and their families don't quite understand this relationship. And there's a movie called A Love Song. This is, this takes place at
2: a campground. Hey, Steve, it sounds (laughs) like the same movie. This lady's going to go to a campground and wait for her her lost love.
1: And he's going to show up later on
2: and they're going to sing together.
1: This, okay. Well, (laughs) yes, yes, that's the story. I was thinking that this was waiting for Godot. Like she's going to wait for this guy and he's never going to show up, but no, he shows up and they sing songs together. Uh, Very interesting, interesting storytelling. Uh, a, A certain people of a certain age will be interested in these movies.
2: Book it, book it, book it. Book it, book it, book it. Book it.
1: brings us to our book at our book of the week and it is the end of the month which means only one thing professor pamela Bador joins us to talk about books and make us smarter good morning pam hi how's
0: it going guys
1: going well wonderful wonderful to see you as always we decided that last month's book demon by daniel suarez was so good we should read the sequel this month and so here we are discussing freedom tm it was published in 2010 and uh is a real sequel to demon
2: is this called the empire strikes back <laughs> <laughs>
1: Our demon certainly has uh, grown in its
2: abilities, very much like the Empire, huh, Chip? Uh, it looks like he, he may have joined the dark side. he never know. Well,
1: that's, that's, a, that's a great question. Is the demon the dark side of uh, thinking and society here?
0: And one of the things that I so enjoyed about this book was the idea that nobody ever really dies right? So we have several characters who appeared to have died in demon and they're back with us in different ways. And of course, that can be really fun in science fiction or speculative fiction in general, but this is a bit more like in our age, in our internet age. And certainly as we move into the metaverse, you know, to what degree can people's intelligence outlive their bodies it's a really great question
2: well it's been said and, and i quote quite a bit is that one of the gifts that the previous generation gives to the next generation is to die and let their bad ideas die with them mm-hmm.
0: yes and this notion that maybe we won't be able to give that gift to our children um, is an interesting one.
1: And we're so, so on the edge of this technology becoming real. Uh, Alexa last week said that they, they can have grandma's voice on the Alexa and you could talk to grandma even <laughs> after she's gone. Is that something that we want? Is that something that it would be valuable or does it become a ghost in the machine, literally?
0: I have to say, it's surprising to me that this book is over a decade because I feel like we are very, very close to this technology, like we're heading in this direction. When you read a lot of science fiction, there are many directions that you're not really heading in. Um, but this one feels extremely well, extremely predictive.
2: Well, it, you know, it, it was published in 2010. Yeah. So, if we think about 2007, 2008, we had a very deep recession. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we haven't had a recession since that time, although we have the anxiety of it today. Right. And that may or may not happen.
0: I really liked that at the beginning, he was trying to scare us with gas prices, right? But we're already, he was like, oh my goodness things are a disaster. Gas prices are $5 per gallon. And I'm like, "Mm -hmm." Mm -hmm. that's literally where we are. But he did, he did go deeper. (laughs) He did go further. (laughs) I,
1: I love how at the beginning of each chapter, we get a reading on what the dollar is worth. what the demon credits are worth this is a real treatise on consumerism that's i think the main point that he's trying to make is is the the virus of consumerism is the real problem in the world of freedom
2: for who who is who is it the problem with consumerism
0: of people i think is what he's suggesting
2: okay so people in africa and other poor parts of the world don't have opportunities to to grab what they feel is important,
1: it's it's the consumerism of that. It's it's the the drive to consume, to to be a cog in the machine. That I think is his message here: that we are all just doing our mindless bit for these big corporations.
0: I found this actually a very interesting novel to read today because I have just finished teaching a utopia and dystopia class this summer. And I found, I've taught this class maybe three or four years in a row. And this summer, my students continually use the term hyper-capitalism in all of their essays. And that is that sort of um, analysis that capitalism and democracy cannot coincide once we've reached this level of capitalism. And it was a term I always find it fascinating when, like my students, obviously our students are always teaching us, right? <laughs> and this is something that I haven't really. The term hypercapitalism isn't one that I especially use, but as they continue to use it, I started thinking more and more about it. And I think that's the exact argument that Suarez is making in this novel: is that relationship between hypercapitalism. He didn't use the term, but people do and democracy and the notion that they cannot necessarily coexist after a certain point.
1: There's lots of characters and story and plot to freedom TM. One thing that I I found very interesting is how Peter Seebeck our our main character from demon really takes a back seat in the story of freedom. He's got this quest. He is this, this, uh, uh, almost religious character to the dark net but he's he's not our main character I would say
0: although he's I don't know I guess I'm not sure if I agree with that I like that so it feels like we may not spend as many pages with Pete as we do with Ross but I don't know he's a pretty major character we see a lot of things through his eyes and I, I mean I was fascinated with our trip to the Midwest, right? And we see a lot of that through Pete Seebeck's eyes as he finds out how like major agricultural um, industry works, how the decisions that farmers have to make, how crops work, like, I don't know. I guess he seemed pretty, he's pretty central to me. And he was someone who again, appeared to have died, but then we knew that he had survived the first book. His presence in this book and his quest which I think you're totally right to call quasi religious Mm -hmm. Find out if humans should or should not survive. (laughs) Really? I mean, how is it framed? What's the, what's the question he's supposed to answer
1: at the end? You're you're skipping to the end already. No,
0: no, 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 no. But he's supposed to find out like, do humans, do humans deserve to live or something? I can't remember the wording of, of his quest.
1: Right that's that's the main piece of the quest is 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 should the human race continue or is it useless right. and right. and and prove to the AI that humans have the right to survive the right to be a part of this structure
2: so that's- well, w- without the Gor- George's guide spends, how are they going to do it I mean
1: poor georgia poor georgia guidestones oh oh that's spoilers they they blew up the georgia guidestones and nobody's going
2: to replace them or maybe somebody will in the future in real life in real life too not not in not in a novel (laughs) someone was going to point out what we should do and somehow it doesn't exist anymore (laughs)
0: and i feel like pete is sort of our perspective as the reader so again, even though he might not be in as many pages, I do think, you know, he starts out as a level one rogue. And so as people who may not be major game players, the reader sort of sees how the game works. And of course, that was one of the concepts that was most fascinating, right? Was the overlay of the game onto the real world. And as Pete experiences that, and was like, oh my gosh, like the game, it's like the world. Mm-hmm. We as the reader get to see how that functions.
1: And I think that worked really well in Demon where Pete Seebeck was the naive, non-technological stand-in for the reader. But I think that here, I think Natalie Phillips is a much more of the main character, she was introduced in Demon. She was you—you uh, you, you happen to say she was the smart woman because she could do a math problem. But here, she has a much more prominent role in the sequel.
0: Well, and I actually thought that Natalie was going to be our main perspective in this novel, but then we sort of dropped out of her perspective a little bit once she had her reunion with Ross, the love of her life. So I don't know. I guess. I did like her perspective. It just we didn't spend that much time in it.
1: Interesting. I wonder. I wonder if this book would be better served with a single narrator like Demon
2: was.
0: Hmm, that's a good question.
2: I, a single I, perspective I, is what I. Mean, what I mean. I, 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 I'm. I'm going to say yes. I mean, it probably it would have uh, tightened it up a little bit because what we got was a lot of jumping around.
1: I agree. I, I think this would make an interesting miniseries because of the different perspectives from all the different parts of the world all coming together, merging into one story at the end. But there was something about the, the viewpoint of Pete Seebeck in Demon that we were locked in and understood story beginning, middle and end with that one.
0: I actually think that you do need multiple perspectives to tell the demon story, but it's true that he just sort of dropped perspectives, (laughs) um, you know, quite a lot in Freedom comparatively. I think he was more like we kept going back to Pete as a touchstone in uh, Demon. I actually missed um, Charles Mosley, who I thought was such a great character in Demon. And I kept thinking we're going to get to Charles Mosley again, but we never did.
1: Yeah, it, it, one of the things that you said about Demon was the the two dimensional characters. These characters are very basic characters, not deep literary characters. Here we get a little more depth to their character, but yeah, Charles Mosley was maybe the best written character in the first book, and he does not appear in this one. That's very interesting.
0: <laughs> it was a surprise. Um, <laughs> yes, I also think like Loki is such an interesting character. And whew, we had a we had a torture scene that I had some trouble getting through. I'm I'm not very I'm not very good at reading torture scenes, but um, you know certainly like trigger alert. There's a really rough torture scene in
1: this book. A lot of body horror for sure. A, a lot of moments where you are in the perspective of this person being tortured, and and yes, just absolutely uh, terrible. But he survives which is very interesting. I did not expect Loki to survive the the major and his brutality, but he survives and becomes almost another part of that religious uh, ability that beyond human, that supernatural ability that he has to control the Razorbacks are very scary motorcycles with huge razor blades that can come in and, and ruin your day. Self driving uh, motorcycles. M- very M-
2: Mad Max style.
1: Mad Max, but self driving, which is even scarier because there is no humanity to these. These are just tools that are being thrown around at very high speeds. And there's no soft spots,
0: right? Mm-hmm. Like when you have a human on a motorcycle, you've got soft spots. But as a weapon, these are pretty terrifying.
1: And they just keep coming. There's so many of them by the end of the story that, that that the terror of this book is is palpable.
0: And I find it interesting that we really do have these four factions. And so I think as the reader, you have to be put into the four perspectives. So we have Pete Seebeck, who does function, I think, as like, you know, good guy, but not a huge techie and is learning as he goes right? And in in this novel, is trying to learn about philosophy, as well as new technologies. Then we have Ross, who is our super hacker character, and on the good side. And then we have, you know, on the, on the, the antagonist side, we also have two factions. We have the tech faction with Loki, and then the military faction with the major. So, Structurally, it's a very well-designed book with these sort of four leader, these four white male leaders who are controlling the world and controlling the overlay of a game board on the real world with all of the attendant economic and political implications. So it's a really, it's a good structure for a novel. And then there are places where you might want like a bit more character development, but structurally, I think it's very sound.
1: And, and we get then the fifth corner on your square is Roy Merritt, who was killed in the original story and is has become this pseudo religion where people around the world are watching to see what's going to happen because they resurrect the personality of Roy Merritt in the darknet he is a ghost walking around only on that gaming layer and he has powers beyond imagination
0: and that power very importantly comes from the people right so when Roy Merritt who's at level 200 and the second highest fighter is Loki at level 50 when Roy gives some of his powers to Pete then people around the world start donating their hard-won levels to Roy at like 100,000 to one and get him back up. So I think that Roy is our religious figure and there's we don't quite know what to do with Roy and we're never in his little AI perspective, but we just see that as a phenomenon.
1: What? I really like this book. I really like the idea of, of going on after we die, being a part of something, being a part of a quest, being that spirit guide and Roy Merritt, brings together all of the pieces of social media too. All of those people watching and they're watching Pete Sebeck's quest as as something for entertainment value as well. But there's something about coming together to battle the, the, the evil of the world that is Roy Merritt.
0: And what did you guys think on the social media side of the importance of reputation. I really liked that idea that within the game, people have their level, which is their skill and their reputation. And Loki has a half-star reputation because he's just a jerk to everyone. Um, And he loves that. He actually, you know, he goes with it. He's, He's a very, very high level fighter who you absolutely cannot trust as indicated by the reputation score. But then people like Pete and Ross, they really try to build their reputation score. So they'll have more influence.
2: That's something that's very old though. It's getting used on bulletin boards all the time that people have uh, could, you know, if you make a nice comment or something like that, they can give you a reputation boost, but there are also just people who just like create anarchy, And they, they're the ones who, Say the off-color type thing. They're the person who is the antagonist, and they just get beat up, and they're and so that's also a um, I don't know a sense of pride or or something like that because they you can tell they've been around for a long time, but they're you know always on the edge of being excluded from the group.
1: And that's where the major comes in too, because the major is also that antagonist to Loki, the two of them locked in this battle, trying to, to get control over the demon or to, you know, make sense of this world. And I love this quote from the major. He says, bastards like me serve a purpose. People need order. They need to be told what to think, what to do, what to believe, or everything will fall apart. This miracle of modern civilization doesn't just happen it requires careful management by professionals willing to do whatever is necessary to keep things running smoothly i think that is a big theme of this is how do these structures how does this society stick together are there bad guys that need to do the things that they do to protect us so what do you think about that steve I I hate that it is probably true that the things that have to be done that I don't want to think about have to be done. And the, you know, Pam brought up the torture and we've, we've thought about torture in our military for a few years now. And the, the idea of getting information at any cost is that information so valuable that we can lose our morality and uh torture that information out of somebody that's uh, that's a dark place to live so you, you went two places there i did <laughs> i did i'm i'm completely of two minds but, on this
2: well one of the things is is that there's a um the lack of recognition there's emergent order of society, so even though you know one person may get something wrong, or two people may get something wrong, or uh, somebody may get something right, the larger the, the the group, the sample, it tends to move to the area that is is the right answer, and you see it when people are, are asked trivia questions or something like that. And as the groups get bigger, any individual may not have the right answer. But the answer comes through, you know, emergent order. Um, and, and that's sort of kind of, I mean, it's something that's played out. And that in and in, in of, of itself is is really underappreciated that groups tend to move to the, you know, whatever the, the, the thing. That the wisdom need. of crowds. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. the, so we end up missing out on some of that. And it's just really one of those hard, hard things to, to um, convince people to allow people to make their own decisions. And you see it in individual stuff all the time right? because people want to somehow control uh, an individual's right to choose something. But you see it other in other things because you know people like there's a group of people that like rules because they like rules, and they just want to you know instead of allowing individuals to react to something just in in, without a rule, they have to come in and do it. We've seen in the world, one of the least regulated areas has been the computer area and information systems and all that other stuff. And we've got this wonderful, like, blown up uh, in a a wonderful way. And this is, that allows the dystopian part of it to come out in this book. But we we, we have other areas that are incredibly uh, harshly regulated. That we still have problems with. So you know, the the idea that you you can somehow uh, wrangle all the issues down and, and find the ultimate solution. And there's this one solution that's so much better than others, that may not be the 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 right approach.
0: And I think that part of what Suarez is getting at is that with more artificial intelligence that we actually have to start thinking about, like what the wisdom of crowds means. I love that point, Chip. Um, There's a couple of quotes that I want to look at, like when people become more reliant on multinational corporations than on their own communities, they surrender whatever say they had in their government. Corporations are growing stronger while democratic government becomes increasingly helpless. And that's something that Suarez shows throughout this novel. Um, you know, he does have I think only one, but it could be two scenes of actual government officials. And I love how he does those scenes where he's got FDA says this, CDC says this, NSA says this. He doesn't even he doesn't even try to create characters; they just sure. want their role. But those guys are only in the novel, like in the first third of the novel, because by the time we like the major although a military character is really pretty separate from the government by the time we really get into his plan, his corporate takeover plan. And so, um, so yeah, so that idea of like, with these two different kinds of intelligence, human intelligence and artificial intelligence, and what that does to not only the wisdom of crowd, but democracy on which that concept is based is really, up for grabs, right? It's anyone's guess what happens next.
2: And going back to your idea of this torture that you were describing, um, a lot of this comes down ultimately down to rights and where where those rights are held. I mean, there's a reason Guantanamo Bay is not in the United States. Right. (laughs) Because a person, I mean, one of the questions that can be asked is, you know, does the United States Bill of Rights That they have established does does a person outside the United States does it protect them? And the answer is maybe, because there are many times in war situations where that's one of the reasons they they can do stuff is because there is they don't have those protections. And if they would have picked up Guantanamo Bay and moved it from Cuba to Miami, well, none of that stuff could be done. Mm -hmm. So you know, going back to uh, Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth. But, but I mean, that. Yeah. what a relevant statement on that, because it's not saying it's right. It's saying it exists. And that's a really tough thing to come to terms with, because any one of us would say that's not right, but somehow it exists. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. And that actually brings me to the other quote that I wanted to look at with you guys about democracy, Um, democracy requires active participation and sooner or later someone offers to take all the difficult decision making away from you and your hectic life but the dark net throws those decisions back onto you it hard codes democracy into the dna of civilization you upvote and downvote many times a day on things that directly affect your life and the lives of people around you not just once every few years on things you haven't got a chance in hell of affecting so that idea that the dark net or like, let's just say the internet um, allows all of us to participate in everyday decisions on a much more active level. This reminded me of the Ready Player One analysis where our main character Wade, he always votes for Oasis elections, but he's never actually voted in a US presidential election because it doesn't seem relevant to him. And I don't know, are we going there? Are we in a place where our pol- or political system seems so broken, it's irrelevant, and our real lives become our online lives? I mean, I hate to even ask that question, but I think it's a question that needs to be asked, and Suarez is asking it.
2: I don't know. For, for a group of people, maybe. I mean, um, you know, there are people who live in really bad lives, mm-hmm. and they could be for any reason. Uh, it could be that they have no tr- they can't move from where they are. You know, they're a kid who's in a, you know, a bad family situation or uh, a spouse who feels trapped and where they are. I mean, there's never been a better time in the history of the world where there's an opportunity to escape that. But I mean, I don't think that 300 years ago, if you were born in a really bad situation, I mean, other than like running away and really taking a risk, like you jumped on a a ship, Mm -hmm. or something like that. I mean, most of us wouldn't be able to do stuff like that. Um, But still, I mean, there are people who live in, you know, any, your imagination can, can determine what a bad situation is. And
1: there's so many great stories about people who have found that escape route that did make it in, in whatever situation that they're in today. I, I know several people that have harrowing stories of escape and uh, the idea of this overlay of technology on top of the real world and having this other life we we are so close to this being reality uh i don't know i don't know whether democracy is something that can survive ai or if ai can bake it into the dna of civilization like like daniel suarez puts
2: here that that seems like a, a good part of this dystopia so th- that brings me a couple of um, thoughts. Um, I was in a, a class over at the University of Chicago, and it was um, kind of a, a seminar type thing. And this guy is, is really bright. He stood up and said something to the effect, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase him, but he, he really did say this. He goes, "Oh no, elections are to determine, you know, what the policy should be. Like, you know, in the United States we have an election for president every four years, mm-hmm. and I was going." how can someone so bright be so ignorant? Because the rules don't change every four years. That's our leader of that. And the idea that somehow the mass should figure out what's best for the individual, I mean, that's a constant battle that we will always have because the individual, I mean, think about the growth of what people can do today versus what they could do 100 years ago Mm -hmm. or 50 years ago or 25 years ago. Um, and, and many people would have a very difficult time, at least in the West or in, in the United States, of going back to a system that you know, those people weren't able to express themselves. So, I mean, that's a very difficult type of uh, place to go. But on a more academic level, I would say that um, I, I went to, when I was studying economics at Mason, we had, uh, we had James Buchanan in and, and, um, and his work with Gordon Tullock. That was part of it. Gordon Tullock's from Rockford, uh, Illinois. And Tullock spent a lot of time talking about, or even Buchanan was, you know, how can we encourage people to make good decisions so that we all can live together and create an environment that allows us all to be this wonderful people without feeling like we're being coerced into doing that. You know, if I've got to constantly twist your arm to do this or beat you into submission to, to do it, that's a terrible set of rules. Mm-hmm. And so how can we work in a society that can encourage those types of, um, I don't know, um, good things? Because, you know, I, anyway, I, I think that um, Tulloch really, one of the, you know, the questions on his, his class to begin with was who should rule society? And his answer is, of course, him. <laughs> and, and your answer should be you, right? You know what's Sounds best. Sounds like the first day of class for sure. But but we can't live in a world that you're the one choosing. Right. So we have to come and figure out a way for us to work together. Because, you know, you, you would say, you know, what, what you felt was best for everyone, but for other people, they, they certainly wouldn't feel empowered by that. They would feel wrong but you know if we had some benevolent person who you know certainly created the environment that your your rights were protected and you could live the life you want to and all that other fun stuff I mean certainly that would be better than democracy but then again you could immediately go in your brain like oh that could turn really bad real quick and so yeah we, we live in a an interesting time where things, you know, you can always look in around and find that there's something that should be better, but at the same time recognize that, you know, um, you know, how where were we before? And where where do you think we could be a hundred years from now? I don't know. There anyway, these are all kind of big ideas and big thoughts. And certainly Suarez was able to bring that out in this book.
0: And that problem you identify is right at the center of utopian and dystopian studies, right? Which is that each of us might have a slightly different, or even radically different, sense of what is a utopian society. Is it one in which the game board is overlaying on the real world, or not? And different people might completely different agree, disagree on that. Which brings us to the title of this novel: Freedom. TM with the trademark sign as part of the title. What did you guys make of this title? I thought it was fascinating and I'm still kind of thinking about
1: it. Obviously, the point that he's trying to make is that ownership of freedom is something that you don't automatically get. That that the idea of a corporation creating a holiday and trademarking that holiday could be a, a real problem in our current society, and the idea of a corporation creating freedom and granting you freedom could be problematic as well.
2: The, uh, did you guys? Uh, what did you guys get on Prime Day?
1: <laughs> i i didn't get I anything this <laughs> i did not buy anything on prime day this year chip <laughs> but yeah that's isn't that where we're at that corporation granting you though the access to those things all of those major corporations
2: oh my goodness i mean christmas i mean what is the meaning of christmas like well, i have lots mean, of meetings I right you're <laughs> it could have, have a lot of meetings right Mm-hmm. But but part of it is, yeah, people feel that during this, this time of year, there's a lot to be purchased or whatever it is. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Charlie Brown. Well, I mean, certainly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I think that idea of like who controls freedom, right? Is is freedom something that your government protects for you, the individual, or is it a corporate trademarked concept? What's the world we're living in?
2: Right? We we just we just had Independence Day here in the United States. I mean, they outlined in the Declaration of Independence what at least the, the concept of that would be.
0: And then the question is: In twenty twenty two, is that still an accurate representation of reality? Especially if we think about augmented reality and virtual reality. Did those does has that term changed? has that term in some sense become trademarked? I'm not saying it has or it hasn't, but I think that that's what Suarez is asking us to think about. Has it become corporatized?
2: On this same note, um, Ohio State University- has, Yeah. (laughs)
0: Ohio State University.
2: (laughs) They trademarked the word the. In that particular situation. Right.
1: Right.
2: The situation.
1: Sounding. (laughs) Oh my goodness. No, the situation was on Jersey Shore. That's that's a different character. (laughs) Oh my goodness.
0: (laughs) So we the Jersey Shore?
1: (laughs) Gotta go down to the Walmart. So anyway. Since we're off the rails completely at this point, I think we can, I think we can agree that the ending of this story is significant. And actually, when I think of this book, I think of this moment at the end where Pete Sebeck is asked by the demon, should I destroy the demon Sergeant Seebeck took a deep breath and then shook his head. no. Let me confirm your answer. Should I destroy the demon? Yes or no. And Seebeck responds, no, that's a, a powerful moment where the demon has the opportunity, gives the opportunity back to our main character. Should this system stay in place? Is this system harmful and Seabek is given like, you know, seven seconds to think about it and, and responds, no, that this is maybe the best system we have available. What did you think about that ending?
0: I love the ending personally. I thought it was great. Um, And I, I will just say like, I have a soft spot for science fiction novels that start out with some sort of like big bad, the demon, um, and then are like, maybe it's really the big good. I just personally love that. Um, I thought that one of the things that was really powerful about this novel was the agricultural piece of it. This notion that our current system of agriculture is really not sustainable and that we need to start rethinking that. Um, I think that's something a lot of us are concerned about in terms of food production. And so um, the way that the demon always appears when you need it the most right so I mean this happens what four or five times in these big big fight scenes that are really like drawn for games I mean Suarez really captures what the game feels like throughout in his writing but when you get into a, a situation where obviously everyone's going to die and then that triggers the demon to send help hmm I think for Pete back it'd be pretty hard for him to say, "Yes, yeah. let, let's go back." You can't, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You can't close Pandora's box. I mean, this is where we are. We have to keep moving forward as ethically as we can.
1: And isn't that a metaphor for where we're at in, in real life between yeah. the systems in place for government, the systems in place for these large corporations that we that we certainly feed into, uh, can we destroy? Is,
2: is it too big to fail? I, I just want to point out that um, the Soviet Union failed. Mm-hmm. So the idea of something being too big to fail, everything can fail. Mm-hmm. And, you know, China... Is it set up to fail? Possibly. Possibly. Is the Earth set up to fail? Right? The mice set up that experiment. This, this idea that you can c- control over variable. It's, not, it's, just, it's just impossible.
1: Mm-hmm. It's, that is one of the messages of this book for sure. Then we get to the post-credit ending, the very cinematic ending where, where we have the major crawling out of the building that he was trapped in and thinking that he had escaped and then suddenly the ghostly uh, otherworldly character Heinrich Borner from the video game shows up and uh, the, the quote is just wonderful the last of the story now the Razorbacks were all around the Major trapping him in a circle of swords the Razorback nearest Borner raised one sword and Borner hung his leather jacket upon it he rolled up his shirt sleeves and grinned at the major i do so enjoy my work that is the ending of this story (laughs) wonderful
0: I love that you call it the post-credit ending. That is exactly what it feels like. But then, so there's a sort of, should should I say fun part of this, even though it's like, we're, you know, we step away before we see the full torture. But I think there's also something like really intellectually satisfying about this as well, because in the same way that we have those two antagonists, the technological one and the non, you have the destruction of the non-technological antagonist, right And so we know that moving forward and there shouldn't be any more books like this is book one, book two, the end. very nice.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We know that moving forward Loki, Loki and Loki's type of antagonist will always be there. but the major is from another era now. It sort of marks that transition mm-hmm. comes out of Pete Seebeck's decision.
1: I I love the ending of this book. I I think about both of those endings quite often. The comeuppance that comes to this character, uh, probably well-deserved after what we've talked about with the torture that he inflicted upon Loki. Uh, This, I really enjoy this book very much.
0: Yeah, I do too. I'm really glad you brought it to us. This was great.
1: Yeah, this was a lot of fun. It it, it is fun. It is the darkest sort of dystopian fun, isn't it?
2: Well, that's the point. I mean, a a book is a, you can go and you can have ideas presented to you. But when a writer takes an idea and kind of runs with it, it helps you think about it. I mean, you're thinking about it through their mind and how they present it to you. But the idea is good books are meant to challenge you a little bit, make you think.
0: And this one happens to be super well paced. So it's Agreed. not in the world, but the pacing is terrific. It reminds me of another author that you brought to me, Steve, which was Blake Crouch, who also had extremely well paced writing, which is a delight. And Let me also make a note that I thought the audiobook was terrific. So, um, did you guys listen to the audiobook?
1: Yes, ma'am.
0: we're all audio readers these days but one of the so I thought the narrator was very good but I loved the demon's voice so the female AI voice was tremendous and one of the scenes we didn't talk about was when she did that interrogation where she said to the guy what is your name and he said nothing and she said does it begin with an A oh I see not a B oh I see not and she actually gets all of the information she needs just from his phatic cues. And so anyway, I, I thought that the audiobook was extremely well-produced and helped with the pacing.
1: Even though the narrator gave us a Hank Hill voice for Hank Fawson, <laughs> the boy ain't right. I'm, I'm going to Bobby. I'm, I'm going to go and do some farming now <laughs> the whole time. That's all I heard was Hank Hill's voice. Yes, I agree. Uh, audiobooks are the way to go. Those of you who are are trying to keep up with reading, audiobooks are a great way to do it while you're doing other things like jogging or dishes. Yes. So thank you, Pam, once again for, for coming in and talking to us about utopia and dystopia, this time through this second novel from Daniel Suarez, Freedom from 2010.
0: Thank you so much for having me. And you guys, you always bring me such great novels, but also such great conversations. So
2: thank you. Oh, I love it. Scroll with it.
1: Brings us to our scroll with it. There's plenty of things happening in the news. Let's talk about almost none of them. Google has rolled out a new programming language,
2: Chip. Well, there we go. You know, if if Apple can have a programming language, so can Google. I,
1: I know that I teach computers for a living and I know that I'm a computer nerd, but I get excited when I hear about innovations in programming languages. This one is called Carbon and it is going to be, they're trying to make it the experimental successor to c a, a programming language that's been around for decades
2: well c plus was one of the foundational ones right it was right after i don't know COBOL and stuff mm-hmm. like that that um really kind of uh i guess they were teaching when we were in school steve
1: that's right and and sparked so much innovation and it's time to to Get to the next level of programming languages. I look forward to showing this to my students uh, during the school year for
2: sure. So, so, if you're programming through something like Carbon, and I am truly ignorant on this, I remember writing source codes, stuff like that. Are you basically stringing together modules, things that have already been re- written at this point? Is that what something like Carbon would be doing?
1: Probably yes. I mean that is that is the the norm for programming now. Now that most of the code has been written, it's just getting a, a new idea based on the old ideas. Stringing together different modules is a great way to say that. So I, I look forward to showing this to the coding club. Oh, coding club is going to come up real soon.
2: Ooh, well, okay. J.K. Rowling is in the uh, news again, Steve.
1: Yeah, let's uh, let's go out and play a game of quad ball, shall we? Quad ball is the new name for Quidditch. The International Quidditch Association has officially dropped that name so that they don't have to pay trademark costs and uh, don't have to have an association with J.K. Rowling.
2: Interestingly enough, is is why would warner brothers or jk rowling seek the ip on it and my 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 purpose of that would be if there's a lot of people playing quidditch wouldn't that just be a response you know a way in the future to go oh where did this come from well it came from harry potter books Mm -hmm. it's kind of like george lucas saying well no you're not allowed to use star wars well i mean
1: Think about Star Trek and how they protect their intellectual property instead of letting fans make a tribute to their original material. This could be a moneymaker. Think about how Disney doesn't let me use their intellectual property on stage. They charge me a fee to put on their musicals.
2: But you're putting on their musical. You could do a musical on Cinderella, but you just couldn't use the Disney music. You could put a play on, Mm -hmm. write a play about Cinderella, put a movie on Cinderella. Um, This seems to me like Quidditch. Think, don't think about today. Think about twenty years from now, Mm -hmm. where Harry Potter is an old series, is what my parents read. Oh well, all of a sudden, the word Quidditch could be important, as opposed to quad ball this game i just don't even understand it anyway um why it's anything more than like you know a fun game I, I don't see it moving beyond it anything else but you know who knows some people must have written some rules nothing like running around with a stick between your legs, steve it's
1: fun. Quidditch is fun. And, and Quadball, I, I have to say, Quadball has an interesting ring to it. But yeah, trying to divide Quidditch from Quadball is an uh, intriguing story for me.
2: Well, speaking of Disney and the, the stuff that they do in the world, mm-hmm. Steve, you know, and big you know, IP, um, why don't we talk about they're looking to purchase what?
1: Uh Uh-huh. The thing that I've been saying for how many years? That if Disney ever bought Doctor Who, I would just be sending all of my money to Disney. Disney owns everything I love except for Doctor Who. And yes, a story this week says Walt Disney Company is in discussions with the BBC about acquiring the streaming rights to the new Doctor Who series. Who? Yeah, that one.
2: Well, that's the streaming rights. That's not owning the intellectual property. It is something that certainly could work well underneath there. Uh, Banner, assuming that the BBC re- re- retained control over, I don't know, the material.
1: Right. There there's a lot of discussion that needs to happen there. The money of Disney backing a storytelling series like Doctor Who might be amazing, but the money does sometimes control the storytelling, doesn't it, Marvel? So, I don't look forward to uh that happening. I hope that it doesn't happen, but I hope that Doctor Who continues and finds some way to fund the great storytelling that I look forward to in the new series. San Diego Comic Con happened this weekend for the first time since 2019, Chip.
2: And they announced a whole bunch of things. Now, San Diego Comic Con originally started out as a Comic Con, but it turned into like the place where pop culture is released to the world.
1: Mm -hmm. It's more pop culture than comic books for sure. But since Disney bought Marvel, they are now, you know, the major comic distributor and and the movies are certainly outstretching anything that the comics ever did. Disney had a booth at comic-con for the first time ever.
2: But you know who didn't have a booth at 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 comic-con Microsoft? (laughs) Marvel, marvel or dc, or DC? It, really well marvel
1: marvel is disney isn't it you're going to separate the publishing arm from the movie arm and and tell me that
2: it it doesn't not a matter comic- it's it's not it doesn't matter anymore it becomes a pop culture convention and that's what it's been
1: yeah, and I'm all I'm all right with that. I enjoy pop culture. Uh, have I mentioned that uh, I really enjoy pop culture and I really, really enjoy conventions? I've been keeping one eye on the San Diego Comic-Con news this weekend, and uh, the trailer for Black Adam was released. I look forward to The Rock. Oh, look. Oh, look, Chip. It's another story involving Dwayne The Rock Johnson. <laughs> That movie looked great. I look forward to that along with the sequel to Shazam, Shazam Fury of the Gods. That's coming out. We've got the Lord of the Rings series that's hitting Amazon Prime. We got a trailer for that Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. And the schedule for Marvel Cinematic Universe phases five and six were released this weekend, uh, going through 2026 with their slate of films.
2: And there are two Avengers movies on there, with one being Secret Wars Mm -hmm. and a Fantastic Four movie.
1: I look forward to both of those. I was a big fan of the Fantastic Four comic book growing up, and yes, Secret Wars was a, uh, a big storyline in my comic book reading. I look forward to those movies. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. I think we can. School is starting. It's August next week. So we'll see. We'll see what kind of show we get next week in the midst of everything I need to get done.
2: And we want to make sure we, we thank Professor Pamela Bedore for helping us out and helping us become learned, Steve.
1: Making us smarter at the end of every month. Don't forget, we are going to read Mouse for the end of August. So you should get your copy of Mouse and read that with us for next
2: month's book club. Art Spiegelman's Mouse, M-A-U-S. There you go.
1: We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4 TMS. Our website is too much scrolling.com. Our email is too much scrolling at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Too Much Scrolling. I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'm Steve Foder.
2: And I'm Futuristic Chip Plus. Plus. We'll see you in the future.
1: See, that was about
2: the future. It was about the future, Steve. The Jetsons' future. The push-button age.
0: Push the button, Steve!